as we move into the full light of Christmas Day, we come to the fourth gospel of Christmas, which is from the prologue of the Gospel of John. And again, like the Matthean Gospel and now the, the, the John Gospel, neither of those are texts that we relate to the sweet story of, of a baby born in Bethlehem. But this final Gospel of Christmas Day, remember, 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 what happened at one moment in history is the truth of every moment in time. That this story that we know of Jesus being born in Bethlehem reveals to us that the Christ has been with people for all time, from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time, across time. That this birth is Alpha and Omega within us in every age. And so that the importance of Christmas is not just the historical story, but it's that the historical story teaches us the truth of all time, not the truth of one moment in time. How can it be that a stable so small Could somehow contain enough room for us all It's a story that turned the whole world Happy week of Christmas, everybody. I really hope that you've had a fantastic year and that your holiday planning has been well and that regardless of what country that you are in, uh, you and your family are blessed. It's a beautiful time of the year. We're going to do the normal things before we start the episode. Rate and review, it really does matter. Uh, recently, so I think a week and a half ago, the show was in the top, I think, 200 in the UK, which is amazing to me. There's a top 200, I'm sorry, of Christianity and or spirituality podcast, which is amazing to me. And so please continue to rate, share, review, tell your friends. That just blows my mind. Uh, yeah, I'm at, I'm a loss for words there. Also, same as last week, if you have a spare dollar, consider supporting the show on Patreon or on Glow. Here's the method of that madness. Next year, I really want to try to host a live event somewhere, but I am realizing how much that kind of costs. As it stands now, I don't think the show makes enough through Patreon to do that, but I would love to do that. The show makes a little bit of money, but mostly it doesn't make enough to do that. Um, I would need to pay for either airfare or if it's somewhere local for me, I would need to pay for the room and whatever guest that also has some costs associated with that. And so if that's something that you would like to see and you don't already give, consider doing that. Um, I would love to do it, but I'm going to need your help to do so. But I really look forward to possibly doing that. But as it stands now, that plan is on hold without a, a little more support there. So uh, definitely not a requirement, but if we want to make that happen, that's what has to happen. So I'm so happy to have this chat. So you saw in the show notes or in the episode notes or whatever the, the title is there on your, however you're listening to this show, and you will see that Alexander Shia is back on the show. Alexander is one of my favorite people. Um, truly call him brother. And it is a treat every single time that I'm able to share time with him um, and pick his brain about religion, but also just outside of that as well. Just really a treat. And so we're going to talk about Christmas. There was also a section in here that we kind of talk about Santa Claus. Now, Alexander does a great job of, hey, saying, time out. You may want to pause it for a second and get situated. And so just know that, but you'll hear the warning in there. And yeah, I hope you love it. Merry Christmas, everyone. Here we go. 
Let's talk about Christmas with Alexander John Shia. Dr. Alexander Shia, welcome back to the show. I'm excited to talk with you again. This is not hyperbole. You're one of my favorite people on the planet. Um, I've grown to love our relationship over these past few years, but I'm so glad to have you back on. Happy, to, I'm so glad to talk with you as well. Well, it, Seth, it's a delight, and you know that I count you among, among my brothers, and I, I mean that very sincerely. Thank you. Well, what have you been up to? The last time that we talked was like mm, March or something, and we talked about the Cosmic Christ and Radiance, which is one of my favorites. What have you been up to since then, in brief? Well, so I've been back and forth to the UK and to Spain and the States, and uh, I- I'm having to eat some humble pie, some very humble pie at this point, because the the 13 days of Christmas book that I sincerely hoped would be out now is not. Hmm. And it's it's languishing behind what's coming next very shortly, which is a hardback edition of A Heart and Mind. Because so many people have said to me, this book that I have is threadbare. Hmm. And please, please do something that's a bit more permanent. So, of course, I thought, well, we'll just make a hardback. No, no, no. We've totally re-edited it. We've been working on this thing since July, and I thought it was a two-week project, and it's turned into, what, now five months? Yeah. We're, we're almost at the end. Well, there's a lot in that book, though. So that's a lot. To, just to re-edit, it's, it's a big book. It's a huge book. It's, it's the legacy piece. Anyway, as soon as we can put that to bed, I can turn back to Christmas. How close are you uh, on the Christmas? And, well, I, I don't. I, I stop even knowing anymore because they have a life of their own. I, I wish it was like a pregnancy, which you could sort of say is nine months, give or take a few weeks. Uh, I don't know. I hope I'm close, but I don't know. Hmm. Hmm. I'm excited for it. Yeah. I'm also excited for the hardbound. I'm going to buy myself another copy. Um, yeah, I like hardback books. There's a special spot on the on the um, on the shelf over there for the hardback books. So, thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Uh, so, when did you get back? I, I've been back in the states about two weeks, mm-hmm. and I am time I am time adjusted. <laughs> I am. We're talking today. I'm in Santa Fe. I'm looking out the door. Uh, sadly for me, it's a rainy day. We were hoping it was going to be a little bit colder and much more snowy. Mm. But I, there's no place I want to be more than Santa Fe in December. It mm. just it makes my heart sing. I was coming up the mountain and then down the mountain from the airport, and as soon as you crest what's called La Bajada Hill and you look out and you see the Santa Fe Valley below you, it's like I, my heart just bursts with joy. Well, there's something about coming home, um, or, or what you call yeah, it's it's just something special. There um, is, yeah. Especially when you haven't seen it since August. <laughs> yeah, well, for those that are listening to this edited version, we joked a bit about you only being home uh, in the in the Patreon version of the show just a, a little bit ago, um, which I think that's true. I think you're gone more than you're in the States, but it's, it's good. I, I guess it's good. I am. Yeah. I am. There's some really exciting things happening in the UK, but we won't get into that. But I'm going to be back there for much of March. 
I am excited to see because I know what you're alluding to. Um, I'm excited to see where that goes and listen to it as well or read along with it or whatever, whatever form that that takes. So I wanted to talk to you about Christmas because I can remember distinctly when we first set up to talk the first time, it was close to Lent and you were like, you know, if we're going to talk about Easter, we have to talk about all the other stuff that comes with it. And I was like, time out. Yes, let's do that um, in a second one. And you're doing, or you have done in the past, and, and I know we've chatted a bit back and forth. I know we talked on the phone last year when you got back from from Spain uh, or from the UK or from both, uh, a little bit about Christmas. And so I would love to rip that apart a bit with you if you're willing. I'm willing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I wanted it's a, to... It's a, it's a huge topic and, and I've got a lot that I'm, that's rumbling around inside. <laughs> so it's been too long since I talked with Dominic Croissant about that. So I don't even remember what all we talked about on the phone. I remember bits and pieces of it, but I don't want to focus on that. I want to talk a bit about, and I wrote down a few questions. My, my first question is how and why do we as Christians celebrate Christmas on December 25th? Like, because like that's not always been the case. And I remember, like, I remember hearing you or reading you say that. I forget where I heard it or where I read it. Um, but it hasn't, well, I guess it's always been the case, but the calendars have broken apart and there's a lot behind that. So that's where I'd like to start. How and why do we celebrate it on the 25th? All right. Let's, th- this is an enormous question. And I want to, <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm trying to come back from the Camino, which means when I'm on the Camino, this huge internal erasure happens, which is lovely. But I get back and it's like, oh, there are all these files. and Where are they inside? Okay. <laughs> let's start. Let's sort of walk, walk um, our Christian community and our brothers and sisters back a bit. Uh, the, the Christian calendar is a, is a nature calendar. Or you can say it's a cosmic calendar or it's an eco-spiritual calendar. And what I mean by that is, whereas we have fallen into a a literalization thinking that we celebrate things on the calendar because of a historical date that relates to the life of Jesus, that's really not how the calendar was created except for one feast, which is Easter. But let's, let's talk about how the Christian's story is a great story that goes across time and era. And because it goes across time and era, it has to go also across um, larger than just only a historical story. So when the Christian year was created, it was created because we believe in incarnation. And we believe that nature is telling a story of Jesus the Christ And the Gospels are telling a story of Jesus the Christ. And we want to use both of those realities to amplify the other. Because we want in in our great feasts to have have a a literal physical sensation in our bodies, uh, which goes along with the great deep uh, truth, historical truth, and spiritual truth of the Gospel. So when... When we think of the birth of Jesus, Christianity says, okay, let's understand that that birth of Jesus is talking about a reality that happens every moment in us, especially 
when we're in a dark place in our lives, when we're in a, a nighttime experience, that the depths of our nighttime experiences is exactly where, in my language, the fresh radiance uh, bursts forth or is reborn. So when we come to saying, well, what day on the 365-a-year calendar tells the story of radiance being reborn from a nighttime place? Well, for us, and remember that Christianity started as a northern hemisphere spirituality, for us in the northern hemisphere, that is this time in late December around what we know in the nature cycle we call the winter solstice. So let me just stop there and I just, you know, Seth, jump in, jump in if you've got a question because your questions are going to be really close to the listener's question. And I don't want to jump too far ahead. I do have a question. I heard you say that on a podcast, I think from years ago, and it, it may be an ignorant question just because of my lack of traveling to any hemisphere that isn't the north. Does the way that you're framing Christmas, does it matter if you are birthed out of a faith that predominantly is in the Southern Hemisphere? Because like right now it's hot in Australia or hot, exactly. you know, in and Chile. It, and I lived between New Zealand and Australia for almost five years. Mm-hmm. And I've had the beautiful theological experience of Christmas in the Southern Hemisphere. And it, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful experience, but it's Christmas standing on one leg because it's not an incarnational experience in the earth and the sky. Um, Christmas in the Southern Hemisphere is very near the summer solstice. The days are at their uh, zenith. You know, sun's going down at 1030 at night. Mm. People don't put up uh, Christmas lights because you can't see I mean, who's going to go around and see Christmas lights at 11 o'clock at night? Yeah, at midnight, yeah. Um, <laughs> and and most of the times Christmas the uh, is community gathered at the beach for a barbecue. Mm. And it's it's a beautiful celebration of, um, of a theological concept, of a theological reality, but it doesn't have the second leg, which we, the Northern Hemisphere, have which to understand that the date on the calendar is telling us about a spiritual reality, which is so important for us to always know, not just that there's a Christmas day in the depths of the dark of December, but that there's a Christmas day waiting for us when we're in our deep nighttime experiences, whatever day of the calendar that happens on. That's, That's telling the cosmic story which is more than only the historical story located in Bethlehem and at the end of the Mediterranean 2,000 years ago. Now, the winter solstice, and honestly, I don't know that I knew this before I was helping my fifth grade son study for his standard of learning tests last year, so fourth grade, is I knew that it was a thing. I don't think I really realized that it was the darkest, and so I guess by proxy, maybe also coldest, maybe not, but definitely the darkest day of the year. What significance of the solstice does that have to do with the birth of Christ or the incarnation of Christ? Well, because we can we can describe the winter solstice as the darkest day, or it's the it's the twenty four hour period with the least sunlight is the more accurate way to say that. 
or it's the 24-hour period with the most hours and minutes of nighttime. Mm -hmm. And the word solstice, solstice, means soul, sun, and stis, still. And in essence, astronomically, uh, the to the naked eye at the winter solstice and at the summer solstice, the naked eye cannot perceive any change in the amount of light. So it is three days at the winter solstice before you can begin to the naked eye, you can begin to perceive that light is growing again, increasing again. And at the summer solstice, it's three days before you can begin to see that light is decreasing. The amount of time of light in the day is decreasing. Hmm. So you will know, and I just looked at the calendar because I always have my uh, community gather here in Santa Fe on the night of the winter solstice, and that this year it's the night of December the 21st. And depending on the year, it could be December the 21st or December the 22nd. And of course, you're going to say, well, that's not Christmas Day. Mm -hmm. And you're right. And here's how that three-day separation happened. In the Julian calendar, which is the calendar at the time of Jesus and continuing until the 16th century, the Julian calendar was a calendar which only had 362 days a year on it. And as the millennia went on, we, not having those three days a year in the calendar, December had become the springtime. Mm. So Pope Gregory, the Roman Catholic Pope Gregory, uh, decided to have a new calendar drawn up that would have three more days in the year. So it would go from 362 days to 365. And it would add what we know every fourth year as the leap day. So that the calendar, so that the sun and our agricultural cycle would stay uh, somewhat in balance with each other. All right, well, having created a, a year which has got three more days in it, Uh, And astronomically, everything begins to slip so that the winter solstice now is no longer December the 25th, the traditional day of Christmas. And Christmas for for 1500 years, the date of Christmas was particularly chosen because it was the winter solstice. They are intrinsically linked together. But now... Christmas Day, the traditional day, is going to be the 25th, mm-hmm. and the solstice is going to be the 21st or the 22nd. What do we do? And this this span of three days affected everything on the Christian calendar in terms of all of our feasts. But the feast that it most impacted because of our great love of Christmas was what do we do with Christmas? What do we do with Christmas? What do we do with Christmas? How do we rectify do we move Christmas dates back to the 21st or do we keep it on the 25th? And there are long dusty tomes of argument about what to do. And eventually um, we developed an answer that satisfied at least the Roman church. And just as a, as a trivia note, um, you know, the United States as a country did not change from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar until the presidency of George Washington. Really? 
So, yeah. So George Washington has the shortest presidency of any president who lived out his whole term. Because he shaved off days. Yeah. Huh. So the Gregorian calendar, 14th century, so 1300s-ish, somewhere in that century no. there. No, no, 1500s. Oh, 1500s. Oh, I'm doing it backwards. Right. Okay. Um, and so, huh, so just 200 years. How about that? I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, question about the calendar. So, so if it's slipping, so so this Christmas hasn't moved from December 25th, but the right. weather of December 25th has moved? Am I hearing, or am I miss? No. Am I miss? The, the, the solstice has moved to the 21st. Mm-hmm. Christmas has remained on the 25th. Okay. And the church, Christianity, was left with this dilemma about whether to change the date of Christmas to keep it on the Feast of the Solstice or to leave it on the traditional day, now some almost 1,500 years, the traditional day being the 25th. Hmm. And here's how they resolve the dilemma. First of all, uh, immediately the theologians would say, oh, three days. And begin to think about what three days within our Christian story is. is. And we know that the th- that three days in the Hebrew scriptures is the story of a journey. We know that Jonah was in the whale three days. But most importantly, we know that Jesus was in the tomb three days. Yeah. And that on the third day was the resurrection. So that was that was the first piece theologically that fit, but then then there was another nature piece. Remember, because Christianity wants to stand on two legs, and one is historical theological, and the other is what's going on in the earth and the sky. Well, because Christmas Day is now three days past the solstice, on Christmas morning is the first time that the naked eye can perceive that the light of the sun is increasing. Hmm. And so Christianity could now fully rejoice in keeping the great feast on the 25th, not only because of its tradition, but also because it seemed even more perfect now that not only is it at on the day, which is the longest night, but it's now on the day, which we can actually perceive in our bodies with our eyes. Yeah light is increasing. That's such a beautiful metaphor. I love that. And again, I, I please don't, uh, I mean, I know that there are people who say you're making Christianity a, uh, an earth religion. Uh, it, that's not what I'm about. What I'm about is bringing us back to the reality that because of the incarnation, which is, which is in the cosmos as well as in each one of us, that we want to tell an incarnational story that amplifies the historical story. Hmm. So how did we get from that beautiful metaphor of let's mirror what Christ's coming from the cosmos, in the cosmos, to the planet, what that means, to Christmas trees, Christmas lights, icicles. I would say Olaf (laughs) because there's one in my front yard that my (laughs) father-in-law dropped off during church, which really annoys me. Um, but the kids love it. Um, like how did we get from there to any of this stuff that we do now? And I don't want to say the materialization, like the consumerism aspect of it, because people have been writing lit Christmas trees for a long time. Like how did we get there? Well, they have. All right, so let's talk about, it. I get so excited about the Christmas tree. 
Um, and I get very animated and you can probably even catch a note of irritation that some traditions are thinking that the Christmas tree isn't Christian. Hmm. What a, what a bunch of baloney. All right, here it is. Christianity goes north of the Alps. Uh, as long as we, for, for the first three centuries of our tradition, when we stayed in the Mediterranean basin, we stayed with our Jewish moon cycle. And we, we deviated very little from our, from our Jewish calendar and from a calendar which was really based on the moon as Judaism is. Because in the Mediterranean, the sun is not a dramatic uh, change. It's, it's uh, near the, nearer to the equator, and the sun doesn't vary that much. Yeah. We go north of the Alps, and we meet the Celtic world. And again, let's remember that the Celtic world in these days extended from Ireland to Turkey. That's a lot of space. Ireland to Turkey, but did not come south of the Alps. It's that whole northern region of what we call Europe. And when I say the Celtic world, it's a world that has got all sorts of ethnic variations, but they all are organized around a sun calendar, an S-U-N calendar, where the winter solstice is a primary feast because for them to, um, for the growing cycle of the year, they need to be able to live until the springtime in the summer, which is going to produce the fruit and the fruits mm -hmm. that they live off the rest of the year. So this moment in the wintertime, which we now look at and say, well, we know it's going to automatically happen, but that wasn't the mindset in, in, in these, these times. The mindset in those times is, is that they had to participate in spiritual practice to help or support or engender the sun's rebirth and coming back to them. Well, when Christianity went north of the Alps to this whole new uh, cultural metaphor, they were very resistant to our understanding of God because we were a largely a, a tradition which was about, uh, which celebrated the cycles of the moon. And so we did what his Christianity has always done when it's at its best. We said, we're going to translate our story into your metaphor, mm. which we're not going to give up the truth of our story. We're just going to tell it to you in a way that you can understand and appreciate and know it in your body. Yeah. yeah. So if you've got this great feast of the winter solstice, which you understand you have to engage in spiritual practice to bring the light back. We know about the birth of an eternal light. And we also know that that birth depends upon our spiritual practice. And so we, we brought the great story, the, the, the story from our gospel text, and we integrated it with the Celtic world. And through that integration, we helped them understand something that they desperately needed. And I, there are people who, I, I, I love the Celtic world. And there are a lot of people today who think that Christianity destroyed the Celtic world. Oh, no. 
We didn't destroy the Celtic world. What people don't understand is when Christianity met the Celtic world, the Celtic world was at each other's throats. They were they were rife with tribalism. And Christianity began to harmonize the tribes. And we didn't destroy their calendar. We said to them, we know the story of your calendar, but in a deeper way. Hmm. Let us tell you the story of Jesus the Christ through what you're already celebrating. And this is what is so powerful about Christianity when it's at its best, is it doesn't say to somebody, your story's not true. It says, no, we, we see something deeper in what you already know. We see a deeper love in what you already know. Yeah. Let us share that with you. Yeah. I mean, that's similar to what Paul did at the, is it Areopagus? I don't know how to say that word in Greek, like where he shows up and he's like, you know, you've got all these statues, but I'm talking about that one that you have to the unknown guy. Like, let me tell you about Christ in a metaphor that you understand in a story that you understand because you're almost there, but there's a little yes. bit more, a little yes. bit more. It's like, yes, yes. I mean, I, I love this, this image that I, I would really invite Christianity today, invite individual Christians and traditions to recapture. Uh, and and I'm very fortunate to live here in the U.S. Southwest in a place in northern New Mexico where when the first missionaries came here, they said to the Native Americans here, let us tell you a deeper story that you already know. And this is the only place in all of the Americas where the ritual systems of the indigenous people was not destroyed. North, Central, and South America, here in northern New Mexico, is the only place where the missionaries came and, and built a chapel next to the kiva and did not destroy the kiva, but found a way for chapel and kiva to work together. Mm. Can you talk more about that? Because I think if I transplanted my family out of Central Virginia and put them there, like what would be for and like what would, what would stretch me? in that framework? Uh, Christmas morning in, in uh, Pueblos here, you're going to have the, the village in the, in the Catholic church before dawn for Christmas dawn mass. But at the conclusion of mass, or actually right, be, right after communion, men and boys who have been in the kiva all night preparing themselves to do the ritual dances of the animal spirit that the shaman has determined will be will help the regeneration of the tribe or the people for that year. They come up out of the kiva, they come into the church, and they lead the community from the church out to the dancing grounds where they're going to dance a number of times from dawn until dusk. Hmm. And so there you see it. It's this beautiful, um, in the kiva, they've been preparing the spiritual practice that the people need for their regeneration of radiance, if you can say it that way. And the remainder of the Pueblo is in the church also praying 
for uh, at the feast about the regeneration of radiance. Hmm. And the two metaphors work together rather than compete against each other. Another question that I have, and there may not be a good answer to be honest. I haven't heard you speak on it before. And so maybe I'm just really stretching it too far. But when I think about the story of Christmas, so like in Matthew, you know, we have the story of so many women uh, that are in a genealogy of men and all those women are of ill repute or stories that you wouldn't necessarily see elevated, especially in today's day and age. Uh, but then if we're taking that metaphor as well of, you know, three days and then right after that, it's the voice of the females that are proclaiming like, and you know, in Luke, you got the Magnificat, um, you know, it's always the voice of the female. And so as we're moving the church at North of the Alps and reframing things with some of the Celtic traditions, um, how has the feminine voice impacted the way that that changed? Like, was there a feminine or, or was it just straight co-opting and there's no feminine? Because everything else, at least in my mind, seems to really be framed with the voice of the feminine leading that way, if that makes any sense. It is, Seth, and I, I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to move into that question. Do we want to save the question about the tree for a little bit later in the podcast? No, we can answer it now. I just, that popped in my head and I didn't write it down. So I was afraid to lose it. I was afraid to lose the question. Okay. So make a note to yourself so that we get back to it. Okay. So Christianity, and actually I think this answer is going to weave the two together. Perfect. So Christianity uh, comes comes to the Celtic world, and the Celtic world uh, at the winter solstice is celebrating a 13-day festival of the winter solstice. The uh, first day of the festival is the winter solstice day, followed by another 12 days of the winter solstice festival. And the winter solstice festival is dedicated to the mother because the winter solstice is about the birth of radiance. And so every day of the 13 days of the winter solstice festival is uh, an aspect of the feminine which is brought forward and celebrated in honor of, quote-unquote, the goddess. That's where the 13 days come from, huh? I've always wondered that. I've always wondered that. And and Christianity continued the 13-day festival, but we sort of, uh, I think, we were embarrassed, I believe, about 13 days. And so what we did is we made Christmas Day, Christmas Day, followed by the 12 days of Christmas, still having a 13-day festival. Hmm. All right. But the day before the winter solstice, most of the Celtic variations, most of them, not all, but most of them are going out on the day before the winter solstice. And they're decorating the sacred tree, which in these ancient days was the oak tree. And there was one oak tree, which was the sacred tree of the village. And the reason that the oak tree was the sacred tree was because their belief was, it may be legend, it may be fact, but their belief was is that they were able to harness fire because the oak draws lightning and it would strike the tree and a branch would burn Huh. And they would break the the burning branch from the tree, and they would have, and they would harness fire. 
So on this day before the winter solstice, because they saw fire as a complement to the radiance of the sun, they wanted to honor the, the, the tree that gave them fire as they prayed that the sun would come back to them. And they would decorate the tree by placing in it dried apples and pears and fruits from harvest. And they would celebrate the oak tree in its barrenness on this day. Because in its barrenness, they knew that it was starting the new cycle of growth. Hmm. Well, Christianity comes and it sees this ritual and it goes, again, because we're going to take their story and say, but we know something deeper in exactly what you're doing. Well, we see the, the sacred tree decorated with fruits. And we say, ah, you're celebrating the truth of the Garden of Eden. Hmm. And the sacred tree that stands in the center of that garden. And we know in our story that the birth of Jesus the Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection reopens the garden to all people. Yeah. So therefore, what do we do? We make the 24th of December, because the 24th of December was the day before the winter solstice of the old calendar. We make that day the feast of Adam and Eve. What, what is that? I've never heard of that. I, is that why we call it Christmas yeah. Eve? Do we just drop the Adam? Well, no. It, I mean, we made the, the we made the twenty fourth the feast of Adam and Eve because that was the day that Christians decorated the sacred tree, either in the church or outside the church, huh. remembering that this tree was going to be an expression of the wonder and awe that all people are now readmitted to the Garden of Eden. And I, I mean, I just got yesterday from my nephew this image that he sent me a picture of my little great nephew and my little great niece who are three and two years old. And they just put up the Christmas tree um, in, in their living room. And he sent me this picture of their two faces. That's exactly the expression, not of something which is not Christian, but it's the expression that the fact that that wonder and awe that you see on their faces looking up at that huge tree with a thousand lights on it is an expression of what Jesus the Christ does for each one of us, bringing us alive again in wonder and awe. Hmm. Hmm. I like that. And in that, and in that way, the 24th of December was the feast of Adam and Eve. And I, I remember growing up in my, in my family being very Lebanese and tied to the old traditions that I would go to bed on the night of December the 24th and the house wasn't decorated. And I would get up on Christmas morning and the tree would be there and the lights would be there. Oh my, and the, how stressful. The gifts would, the, yeah, I, now, <laughs> and now I think back to what my parents, oh, who, closed, who closed the store at five o'clock, got us to bed and then stayed up all night decorating the oh, house. Oh man. Uh, but <laughs> to me, Christmas morning was not gifts. To me, Christmas morning was coming down and seeing that tree lit. Mm, I like that. And again, I may be pushing this too far, and then I want to get back to that feminine question. Um, when I hear harnessing fire, for some reason, I automatically go, because I'm staying in that metaphor of Christ, 
to Pentecost, even though we're not there yet, like you know, yeah, yeah, fire, yeah. but maybe I'm, maybe I'm making connections that don't belong. Um, jumping back to that feminine question I asked you earlier. Um, and so through the magic of editing, I'm going to take that whole question and I'm going to put it right here. <laughs> and I said that out loud so that I can have some time, some time stamps for myself. <laughs> um, what, what is the, the voice of the feminine? How has that impacted the way that like we do Christmas now today? And I guess not even just in America, but like overall, cause you know, you, you touch on multiple continents as you travel, you know, you see multiple traditions, you talk with multiple people. Um, so in your view, like that voice of that, we shouldn't talk about this feminine, the voice of the female, like how has that reframed Christmas for right now? Let's go back to a shorthand that we are using that we've truncated. And we've also in some, in our truncating of it, in our shortening of it, we've, we've actually changed the meaning. And the word is evening or even the name Christmas Eve. Um, Evening is for Eve, for the mother. And and the reason that evening is for the mother is because evening is when we return to nighttime, and nighttime for us in our Judaism and in our Christianity is the nighttime because we are inside God's womb from which we will be reborn again. So in the spiritual tradition, Christmas Eve doesn't start until nightfall on the 24th. It's not the day before Christmas. It's the beginning of Christmas, the evening of Christmas, and every evening will, as we journey through it, will come to the dawn and the morning. And so every 24-hour period from sunset evening to dawn into morning is telling us this journey that we make in our lives over and over and over again. We go into the nighttime of God, and from the nighttime of God, we are reborn. Hmm. We go into the darkness of God, and from the darkness of God, every, every day we are reborn. And that's why Advent was intended to be the dark time, this time in November, December, where there's very little sunlight or we, or there is the least sunlight because this is the evening of the year from which the new sun from this nighttime will be reborn. And all of it is just a metaphor for us to learn that what happens in outer nature is also teaching us about what happens in our inner self. Mm. And that as Christians, we come to know beyond hope, we come to a place, my experience is we come to a place where we know that every nighttime will, by faith, become a dawn. And I know that in the outer world, and I can also come to know that, in my inner world. Yeah. So that the, the feast is not there to say that on Christmas morning, I should feel a certain way, but rather that this feast is teaching me the spiritual practice for the second day of July, when some terrible thing befalls me and I have fallen into a nighttime experience. Hmm. 
Yeah, the, the, the material winter, the material deadness that leads to the gestation for, uh, I think you used the word radiance earlier, uh, but then right. also that spiritual one, um, which for those right. that are listening, um, mirrors really well um, with the first two chapters of your heart and mind book of what do we, how do we see God in this? But I do not want to dive back into this, but it does mirror so well. Um, another uh, sacred cow that I wanted to ask you about concerned to Christmas. So St. Nicholas, does that bear any religious significance or is that to the actual St. Nicholas or, or is, is that just something that we made fancy because we felt like it because we needed something no. like, like elf on the shelf like let's make a thing and let's do this and now i have Holly no, no, the elf again 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 I, I love you know this is you just have to peel the layers but again christianity comes to a culture sees their personifications and their stories and say we know that story deeper hmm. all right so i let, let's peel back the story of St. Nicholas. Um, well, first of all, let, let me tell the story of St. Nicholas, uh, and then we're going to tell the story of something from the Celtic world okay. uh, that we interpreted through the lens of St. Nicholas. Uh, St. Nicholas was a bishop in Turkey, uh, on the, in the Turkish city of Mira, um, on the Mediterranean. And uh, Nicholas had been born uh, as a as a child who was born into an uber wealthy family. Uh, his parents died. I don't know if they were killed, but his parents died when he was a young boy and left him as an orphan, but also left him with a tremendous uh, uh, wealth to support him through his life. At some point in his teens, Nicholas becomes a priest. And then at the age of 18, Nicholas is elected bishop of the city of Mira. That's so young. Now, we we have well, no, 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 we have to remember, and I, I, I like to remind all of this, um, that the lifespan in those days was very short. Hmm. You know, even it, we have to reinterpret all of this image of Jesus dying as a young man. No, the life expectancy of a man in Palestine in the first century was 40 at the latest. Hmm. So if he's dying somewhere between 33 and 35, he's dying as an old man. Yeah. Likewise, Nicholas becoming bishop at 18 is probably something like 45 or 50 for us today. But what Nicholas does is becoming bishop, he sees the, the poverty of his people. And he begins to secretly give away his wealth. Uh, the story is, is that by the time Nicholas died, he, he was penniless. Hmm. But one of the things that he's most known for is that in these days, uh, people oftentimes had to sell their daughters into slavery because they couldn't afford a dowry. Hmm. And what Nicholas began to do was to hearing upon a daughter who was reaching that age he would go and he would leave a sum of money for that daughter in her shoes at the front door. What an awful thing, but what an amazing blessing, but I can't imagine. Right. Uh. So that Nicholas is this saint of incredible generosity. Now let's take that story. Let's go to the Celtic world. 
And the Celtic world in this time leading up to the winter solstice, um, they're very concerned about how they are going to live until the springtime. Because unless those who are ill and widowed uh, and sick have support and the generosity of others, they may not make it uh, to the new planting. And they've got this, they've got practices around the winter solstice, which are practices of generosity and encouraging generosity. But their ritual is that they are um, praying and entreating for this figure that they called, quote unquote, the green man to come back to earth. Now, I want to stop right here because if anybody is listening to this and they have children within earshot, <laughs> um, you, you might you might just it's like uh, we, we don't we don't want to. Uh, I'm with you. You know, just th- this is this is a this is a time to put your headphones on. Well, to be clear, when I asked the question, I was in the back of my mind figuring out because I know my kids, both both of my children that are, have have the ability to they both listen in the back of my mind. I was thinking. How can I flag this in iTunes to make this abundantly clear? So I'm glad that you put that caveat in there. How can it be that a poor peasant girl Was chosen to mother the king of the world And there in that moment the tiniest spark Grew into the flame that erases the dark So the green man in the Celtic world, and there, there are lots of variations on this, and I, I, I'm oversimplifying it for this to, to get across the message. But in essence, the green man is this figure. He's dressed in the dark green of the forest. And it is believed that he leaves the earth at the summer solstice, and he goes to the North Star where he lives. And that in the days leading up to the winter solstice, the the people are creating bonfires and they're sending this and they're creating these wood, these wood pile fires made of sacred wood, which was largely the oak tree, as an offering to the green man to come back into the fire and down into the earth and to regenerate their hearts in generosity so that they might give so that as the sun comes back they too might give more of themselves so that their village can all the people of their village can live until the springtime yeah. all right now notice that the green man is coming back down into the fire and where does santa enter the house. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Through the fireplace. Right. And the totem of the green man in a lot of the Northern climates is which animal? No idea. The reindeer. Oh, oh, oh. okay. So we've got North star becomes North pole. 
these huge bonfires become the hearths in our home. And the animal of transportation who supports the green man and brings him to us um, is the reindeer. Hmm. So, so Christianity sees this great story of the green man who comes to help us regenerate in generosity and goes, oh, we've got this saint. We've got this great bishop from the third century who gave everything of himself so that others could live. So we take the, the core story of the green man and we add to it or we see something deeper and we understand the story of Nicholas, but we don't understand Nicholas as Nicholas alone, but we understand Nicholas as a person moved by the grace of Jesus the Christ to live for others. Hmm. And we also and, and we also understand that this is not just a mythical practice in that way, but that this is a that this that we are being inspired to actually live this out. I mean, well, that's the that is the gospel. Like that that's what you're supposed to do yeah. as a Christian. Like yeah. that's that's quite literally the call. While you were talking, I Googled the green man just because I wanted to put a face to what you were saying. And I've seen that picture on a handful of churches, like when you look through like famous churches. And if memory serves, one of those, if memory serves, one of those is called like St. Nicholas something something church, like or Nicholas Chapel Church or something like that. I'm going to have to look more into that. But I feel like I've seen that on a church that also bears the name after that saint. Um, I I feel like I have. So Seth, St. Nicholas is the most popular saint of the first thousand years of Christendom. Because of what he did, or for, uh, because of, of what he did, and huh. because of this, the the this tremendous inspiration, his life was and his heart was to the first thousand years of Christianity, and then what happens? He gets supplanted by another figure for the second thousand years of Christianity. Can you guess who that is? The next thousand years after uh, Saint Patrick. No, Just making this up as I go. Right. Who? St. Francis. Oh, oh, yeah, yes, yes. And they're very similar. Hmm. Both of them are very similar about uh, Francis, born from a wealthy family who gives everything to be a follower of the Christ and to help rebuild community and spiritual practice. Hmm. Uh, and respecting creation, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's it's just amazing to me how in Christianity, as one story in some ways gets old and sort of loses some of its numinosity, that that another saint story comes to inspire us. So how does this framing and this again for those listening, you can just search out <laughs> on on Alexander's website. He's talked about Christmas before in in more depth on certain aspects of this. Um, and yeah. there's just not enough. We'd have to talk for, I don't know, days to work through it. <laughs> um, or or I could, just, I could just read your book, um, but you'd have to finish it first and that would require you to not have the yeah, time yeah, to talk yeah. to me. So I will be selfish <laughs> and say, I'm fine with that for now. How does this relate to, so every, all the work that you do is, you know, the four paths, you know, so, uh, you know, Jesus through each of the gospels. So how do we, in that mindset kind of frame, you know, Christmas through a lens of Matthew, Christmas through a lens of Mark, through John and through Luke. Okay. So 
uh, I don't know whether this is the exact answer to you, but <laughs> what I would like to do is I'd like to to recapture that some of the Christian churches, uh, particularly some of the more high Christian ritual churches, have four Gospels of, of Christmas that they tell in a sequence. And that the sequence of these four stories is told at a particular time of night or day because that particular time of the night or day matches what the story is about in us. Mm-hmm. So there's not one gospel of Christmas. There's four that form a greater story. They form a sequence. And so on Christmas evening, which again is after nightfall on the 24th of December on Christmas evening, the first gospel of Christmas is reading the genealogy from the gospel of Matthew. Every presider's horror is not only to pronounce all those names, <laughs> but to try, but but to try to preach on that at Christmas. Okay. But this, but the story is this, and why it's the Christmas gospel because that genealogy is about people who were in a nighttime experience in their life, and they kept themselves away from full despair, and by the grace of God and their work to stay faithful to the message, they endured through the night to a new dawn. And uh, just one story in there, Tamar, who's the daughter-in-law of Judah, she's her husband has been killed, Judah's son, her husband has been killed. She is a young woman without child, without husband, She's now looking at a life of destitution. She pleads with Judah that he will bring his third son to her to marry. Judah seems to say yes, but isn't doing it. She takes matters into her own action and prays before God that God will lead Judah to come and lie with her as she is standing with the virgins outside of the temple, which is the practice in those days that a man lies with a woman outside the temple as part of the prayer. Hmm. Uh, Judah comes, but before they lie together, she asks Judah for his ring and he gives it to her. And sure enough, a few months later where the text says she begins to show, Judah gives the execution demand because it's his right to have her executed for bringing shame upon the family by going against his orders. Yeah. But she doesn't dispute the sentence. She just asks to meet with him before she's killed and she produces the ring and she stays in the line uh, of, of Abraham uh, and the line that we consider the line of the Messiah, the Messiah. But why is this a Christmas story? when it has no direct bearing on what we're going to hear about happening in Bethlehem that night, because Christmas is about the cosmic inner reality that grace happens, it bursts forth in us from the deepest dark. All right. So as soon as we've gone into the dark of Christmas night, remember Christmas night is before Christmas morning. As soon as we've gone into the night of Christmas we hear the genealogy of Matthew. Later in the night is the second gospel of Christmas, which is the angel, which is from Luke, mm-hmm. which is the angel coming to the shepherds. 
And we have to remember that in those days, first century, shepherds are not very nice guys. Yeah. Um, they, they, they've done something and they have been ostracized from the village. They've been made to do the work that nobody else will do, which is to take care of sheep so that they will smell like sheep. So that if they come into the village, somebody can smell them a block away, which is better than a, than a, a, a bell around their neck. Yeah. They are to be avoided. It is to those people deep in the night that the announcement of the birth comes. And the, the lesson to us with the second gospel of Christmas is this birth, don't look for this birth in your virtue. Look for this birth in your need. Look for this birth in the place of your woundedness. Look for this place, look for the birth in the place where in some ways you feel half starved. And then, and, and the gospel at that part of the night is just the announcement. And then at dawn, we have the third gospel of Christmas, which is we pick up the story from Luke about, and the shepherds came and they saw. That in the night, in the darkness, they heard the promise. But now they have made the journey to dawn. They've made the journey to an outer dawn. But now we, in church at that moment where night turns to day, we also understand that if we make the journey in our lives, whenever that happens, that somewhere our nighttime will again become dawn. That we too, like the shepherds, will see and not just simply believe, but know. Now, as we move into the full light of Christmas Day, we come to the fourth gospel of Christmas, which is from the prologue of the Gospel of John. And, and again, like the Math Bethan gospel. And now the, the, the John Gospel, neither of those are texts that we relate to the sweet story of, of a baby born in Bethlehem. But this final Gospel of Christmas Day, remember, remember, remember what happened at one moment in history is the truth of every moment in time. Hmm. That this story that we know of Jesus being born in Bethlehem reveals to us that the Christ has been with people for all time, from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time, across time, that this birth is alpha and omega within us in every age. Yeah, And so that the importance of Christmas is not just the historical story, but it's that the historical story teaches us the truth of all time, not the truth of one moment in time. Yeah, there's two births. There was a birth then, and it's the same birth now. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, one that you couldn't bear witness to, and one that you get to, and that you are yeah. bearing witness to yeah. today. Yeah, I love that. I love that. You know, and I, I, as a great uncle now, and the chance to to hold my great nephew and my great niece just a few hours from their from their being born and looking into their face. What does that do in your heart? Oh, it, oh, it, it both breaks and mends you at the same time. I, I've said that a couple of times to friends, like all of my kids. Um, it, it breaks every part of you and mends it all back together all at the same time. But you're not quite the same father 
or dad or husband or you're not the same thing that you were 20 minutes before that happened. You're an entirely no. different thing. Um, and it's, it's both scary and frightening, yeah. but it's also something awesome. It's so awesome. And my prayer at that moment is always that I could begin to see that same face in everyone else's face. Mm. It's hard. I just keep working at it. I <laughs> haven't succeeded, but, <laughs> but that's the promise. Yes. Well, Alexander, I lose track of time when I talk to you, which is, I love that. Like, I literally love that. Um, but I want to give you back your, after, your early afternoon. And so in closing, where would you point people to, um, to engage in a more beautiful radiance, to engage in some of the work that you're doing? Where would you send them? I would ask people, please go to my website, um, and which is quadratus.com, Q-U-A-D-R-A-T-O-S.com. And right there on the homepage are two beautiful films that are there just for you to click on and watch that have been created by the work of the people uh, about what we have just been talking about mm. in this episode, about the cosmic Christmas and the historical Christmas and how they work together to enliven us. And then also on my website, you're going to find uh, an interviews page where this podcast will be listed and a, and a host of other podcasts. And the, the links are all there for you to click on and, and listen. And, and um, if you would be so gracious, perhaps go to the store and look at the things that we have items there for sale. But most importantly, we have the guides for forming a heart and mind community from my major work is the book Heart and Mind, The Four Gospel Journey for Radical Transformation. And I really mean that word radical. I don't want to simply change ideas in your mind. I want this work to take you down into your heart. And I want you to hopefully, by grace, live a wider and more gracious life. And I think that that I, I know from the groups around the world who have really taken this work um, that it's happening. Mm -hmm. And all of that is on the website. And there's a list of, of uh, especially coming up in the springtime is a week long Easter retreat. And it's Easter in the way of the first 500 years of Christianity, not what, not the way Easter is celebrated today. And I don't, it's not that the way of celebrating Easter today is less than, but we have a new horizon to reach for. And I really welcome people come and experience this ancient Easter and see if it might be a, a new expression for, for a coming age. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a lot there on the website. Please go quadratus.com. And just one more piece. When I went to the U.S. Patent Office to trademark the name Quadratus, they came back to me and said, well, you have to declare that you don't know the work of somebody in the second century known, known as Quadratus, Q-U-A-D-R-A-T-U-S, who was the Christian bishop of Athens in the second century who wrote a treatise in uh, defense of the foreness. Huh. And uh, and have this name Quadratus. So uh, Quadratus now is a patron saint, uh, Saint <laughs> Quadratus. 
<laughs> and and I was just astounded. Were you able I'd to declare that? You're like, yeah, I don't know what yeah, that, that is. I honestly had never heard of this, huh. this figure. That's. But uh, you know, huh. you think that quote unquote you're creating something, and uh, spirits using you uh-huh. in a wonderful way. Huh. That's that's. I don't think I knew that. I like that. Um, well, good, Alexander. Thank you so much. It's always a joy. It is a joy. Seth, thank you, and and the blessings of this season to your family and to your heart. Thanks so much. Uh, to know to know you is Christmas every day. Mm, that's. That's, that's, that's entirely too kind, but I thank you nonetheless. For me, when I break down a part of that, so I've always felt standoffish when I thought about the influence, you know, of where the, where the heck did Santa Claus come from? Or why do we do this Christmas tree? This doesn't make any sense. And there are so many other things that we didn't talk about that I know we could have. We could have talked about how the cross has changed shape. We could have talked about X, Y, or Z. And we didn't. We just ran out of time. I'm really hopeful that we'll see Alexander's book soon. I can't wait to, to get through that. And I would highly recommend and encourage, if you have not read through his Heart and Mind book, um, it is worth the time and effort to go through it. But don't blaze through it take your time and do it. Consider supporting his ministry and his work. It's life-giving. It has truly impacted uh, my faith. So take that for what it is. A very large thank you to JJ Heller for the use of her music in this episode. You can find her tracks as well as all the other tracks. And I know I've gotten lax on saying this, but I want to make sure everyone's aware. Uh, On the Spotify playlist called Can I Say This at Church, you will find the tracks for them all listed there. Wherever you happen to be these holidays, this Christmas, or whatever you're celebrating, I pray that you're safe. I pray that you know that you're loved. I pray that you see God. Talk to you soon.
She 